Hello, pink skins, blue skins, and skins of every color under the rainbow. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall. People often describe slow things as moving at a glacial pace. But today, we're going to meet someone who will show us that glaciers are actually quite dynamic systems full of movement and life. Celeste Lebedz is a glaciologist who studies the innards of these giant sheets of ice. And she'll help us relate the physics of ice to Captain Archer and Shran's adventure, or misadventure, on the Andorian homeworld in the Star Trek Enterprise episode, The Enar. This is a very special episode of Strange New Worlds because for the first time, I didn't reach out to somebody and ask somebody, twist their arm and say, please come on my podcast and talk to me about science, some science that I observed in Star Trek. Somebody actually came to me and was like, I'm so excited. I just watched this Star Trek episode and I want to talk to you on your podcast all about ice and glaciology. And so sitting across from me today is Celeste Lebedz, who is a graduate student here at Caltech and was super excited and just contacted me the other day and was like, please, 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 let's do a podcast about Star Trek and ice and glaciers. And I was like, okay, uh, we better do this quickly because it's actually my last week here at Caltech. I'm about to move off to the University of Washington and make that long drive up. Um, but Celeste caught me just in time. So welcome to the show, Celeste. Well, I'm very glad to be here, and I'm so glad the timing worked out. I just watched this episode with my friends like a week ago, and all the glaciology came and hit me. My friends humored me while I lectured them, but I figured, hey, there's somebody who would probably have a lot more fun uh, talking all the details on this. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So why don't you start off with who you are and uh, and what you study in general, and then we'll talk about your friends in Star Trek and how this all came together. All right. Well, I am a graduate student here at Caltech. I am approaching my third year, and I am a cryoseismologist. That cryo is ice and the seismology is earthquakes, except I ignore all of the earthquakes and use other vibrations created from other sources. So what my research focuses on is understanding what the water on the inside of glaciers does. Because if you've ever stood next to a rushing mountain river, you know, it's loud, it's putting out lots of energy. You could imagine if you were standing very close, you could maybe feel the ground shake a little. And there's liquid water inside of glaciers and it's rushing and moving too. And, you know, we're not sensitive enough to feel it, but if you put seismometers out and about, you can sense that water moving. So what my research is doing is taking measurements from seismometers on top of and around glaciers and trying to use those to decode what's happening with the water on the inside. Very cool. That sounds like a, a tough problem to crack, but also something that will uh, take you out into the field and give you a lot of amazing memories out there. So I actually did do some field work. I had my very own away mission. I uh, spent a month living on a glacier in Alaska, outside of Juneau, Alaska. It's a place called Lemon Creek Glacier. There were no lemons there, I was disappointed. <laughs> but it was a beautiful place to be. And it was also, it was also very challenging. So we had to get 
over 300 pounds of seismometers from Caltech to Juneau, Alaska. And then we had to get them up onto the glacier and we had to get them all over the glacier. So I, yeah, I spent quite a while with a backpack full of seismometers skiing all around this glacier and putting them all out. And then they were out for the length of their battery life, which was about two weeks where I just hung out. And uh, then I went and picked them all up. So skied all over again with a backpack full of seismometers and brought them all back. That's so amazing. Wow, skiing around a glacier with a backpack of very expensive scientific equipment. Celeste, what, what exactly does a seismometer do? So a seismometer, this is the exact same thing that we have all over Southern California to sense earthquakes. It senses vibrations. So it's a lot more detailed than a person can feel. It can detect even a little tiny, tiny vibration, which is good because the vibrations we're looking for are tiny. You wouldn't feel them like you'd feel an earthquake. So you dropped these seismometers off in various points on this glacier. For those of us who are from very warm places, <laughs> like Southern California, where there isn't really a glacier in sight, give me a picture of what a glacier is and how, how massive and large this thing is. So a glacier is essentially a really big pile of ice. Now that ice is created from snowfall happening year after year. If it's cold enough that the snow can stick around, then it will eventually compress itself into ice, just based on the weight of the snow on top of it. And if you get enough ice, it will actually flow downhill. That's what defines a glacier, is it's enough ice that it can flow. It seems weird to think about ice flowing because it's a solid, but if you put enough weight on it, it will slowly sort of ooze over time. So a glacier is a big pile of ice that is oozing down a hill. And this glacier, is about a kilometer and a half wide and about six kilometers long. And it is about, I think about 200 meters thick at its thickest. So this is a lot of ice. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just up the mountain from Juneau, Alaska as a part of the Juneau ice field, which is a lot of glaciers, big and small, just outside of Juneau. And it's a very beautiful place to be. Beautiful mountains and beautiful, beautiful snowy vistas. But it's also very hard to see that. A lot of the time it is covered in a low mountainous fog. So most of the time on the glacier, it looks sort of like I was on the inside of a ping pong ball. It was just sort of evenly gray in every direction. I'm kind of like, how did you come up with that analogy? Have you actually been inside of a ping pong ball or? <laughs> I have not, but that's what I imagine it looks like. Kind of a soft whitish gray in every direction. Okay, okay. The snow, the snowy ground just sort of blends into the foggy air and can't see anything it's a little scary but it's very cool yeah that does sound very scary did you did you get lost how did you did you have gps what we had G gps units on us all the time and uh, we were always in pairs just to be safe you know it's always good to use the buddy system and we were also all trained in crevasse rescue so glaciers are big enough and they're moving downhill and they can sometimes fracture and that can be scary. It can lead to some hazards. So we were all trained in how to tie the proper knots and set up pulleys and be roped together while we were skiing in order to be safe while we were on this glacier and in case of emergency, know how to save someone. But luckily, we never had to use any of that. So I learned all these knots and pulleys and things, but never had to use it. So it was a, a, very, a very pleasant glacier experience, if a little bit damp. Okay. So you were skiing on this glacier, this massive river of ice that is slowly oozing down this mountain, carving its way down. And you mentioned that there's liquid water inside of glaciers and you wanted to understand 
the tremblings associated with that liquid water moving? Is that what what exactly was the scientific question that you're out to answer, and and what did you find out? So, kind of the larger scientific question we want to understand is about glacier behavior. So, there's a lot that we don't really have a super solid way to observe on the inside of glaciers just because there's so much ice in the way. We can't see inside. I don't have x-ray vision. So one of those important factors on the inside is what the liquid water is doing because liquid water is going to change the way that your glacier can slide. It's going to change the way that it can crack and break and melt. So it's going to have a big impact on glacier behavior, but it's hard to see that water. There are some methods that can help us. We can, for example, pour dye into a crevasse and see when it comes out at the end, or we can use radar to look on the inside of glaciers too. But it's still tricky to get a full picture of what's going on inside of a glacier. So this is hopefully another tool that can help us monitor what's going on inside. And this is a helpful one because it's continuous in time. So now the more specific question that I've been looking for for this project to hopefully help be able to adapt it to understanding larger glacier behavior. So for this one, I was looking at a glacier outburst flood. So at the top of this glacier, there's actually a lake. There's just a little depression in the glacier at the very top, and every year it just fills with rainwater and meltwater. And once a summer, something happens, the bathtub plug gets pulled at the bottom, a conduit opens, and that water rushes out through the glacier. So a lot more water is coming out then than normally. And we put our seismometers out, hoping to catch that glacier flood. And we did, it was very lucky. We weren't quite sure if it was going to match up. So we had that as kind of a natural experiment of that lake draining put a lot of water through the glacier, a lot more than normal over about 36 hours. And then looking at that event, being able to see what goes on when you put a bunch of water in at once, that can help us understand sort of the system better because we know about how much water went in and we can also measure how much came out at the other end because there's a gauge on the river that this glacier empties into. So you're sort of like a, a glacier doctor, you know, if, if you go to a doctor and you're like, what's wrong with me, doc? And they'll be like, well, we can do all of these different tests. Maybe we will do an x-ray, maybe we'll do a CAT scan, maybe I'll use a stethoscope to peer inside of you and see what normally can't be seen. And you're applying one of these methods to glaciers, uh, where there are other methods, like you said, radar, etc. And you've got your special method, your seismometers, to determine what is happening inside of the glacier, deep within it that you can't see, but you know that there's this water running and you were lucky to catch this outburst. That's awesome. Yeah, that is so cool. That's actually the same metaphor that I use. I, I call the water system inside the glacier, uh, like the glacier's guts. Mm. So when I go, I love to do science outreach. So if I'm talking to kids, I describe it as glacier guts. And we're trying to figure out what's going on <laughs> in, in the glacier's guts. And they seem to enjoy that, thinking about glaciers having guts. Very cool. So... That sounds like an amazing experience, a whole month on a glacier. You had your own little away mission, and it was thankfully not too perilous. Um, And it reminds me of this episode of Star Trek, which you actually brought to my attention because you had just watched it, and that's why you wanted to come on board and talk about glaciers on Strange New Worlds, where Captain Archer and Shran the Andorian go back to Andoria and they have their own little away mission in the ice caves there and they were looking for the Enar. The episode is actually titled The Enar, right? And this is all part of a trilogy in the fourth season of Enterprise. I call it the Unification Trilogy. I'm not sure if it has any actual title to it, but it's all about how for the very first time 
humans, Vulcans, Andorians, and Tellarites can come together and not fight all the time. These are four of the founding members of the United Federation of Planets. And um, so, Celeste, you were, you're watching Enterprise, or you had just finished it, right? Um, yeah, I just finished it uh, the other day, and the, the Enar and this whole Unification Trilogy is one of the last episodes. So uh, if you're going to start watching Enterprise, it might be a while until you get to this one. But it's a ride the whole way through. I recommend it. Uh-huh. And, and so I actually don't know very much about your relationship to Star Trek fandom. Is Enterprise the first Star Trek that you've ever seen? Have you seen the rest and now you're just getting to Enterprise? I've seen a lot in different bits and pieces. Uh, Enterprise is the first TV series that I've really seen in, in full continuity. I've seen, yeah, selected episodes of, of the, some of the other series and enjoyed them. But this was the first one where my friends and I sat down and said, let's watch them all. Nice. So, yeah, I've seen handfuls of, of movies and episodes, but this is the first one where I really got full continuity. For me, it's actually much the same. I grew up watching Star Trek Voyager as often as I could when I was a kid. And when Enterprise came out, it was during my early teenage years. And I was like, yes, this is going to be my series where I watch it all the way through as the episodes air each week. So Enterprise has that very special place in my heart as well, that it was the first Star Trek series that I really watched from beginning to end all the way through. And I'm, I'm very curious, I just have to ask, you know, there's a lot of TV out there. So when you and your friend group got together and decided to watch a TV show from beginning to end, how did you decide to do Star Trek Enterprise? This is actually a very interesting story. So we were at a Caltech event, one of the astronomy outreach events, and I happened to go with these two friends that I watched the whole series with, and afterwards, somehow something reminded one of them of Star Trek. And we all got talking, and we'd all seen different bits and pieces of Star Trek, and we thought, hey, let's just watch some together. We really get along well. We were sort of just becoming friends at this point. And... One friend was a huge Enterprise fan. It's his top favorite, just loves it. So we decided that's the one we're going to watch all together. So we started that on Netflix, and it took us over a year to get through all of them. But it's always a delightful excuse to uh, hang out with friends and watch a little sci-fi and play with one friend's cat, <laughs> who, who joined us for the whole series as well. So yeah. It's, it's, yeah, us and a cat. Wow, that's, that's amazing. I love those stories where Star Trek really brings people together, and it's... Um, a wonderful thing to have a group of friends to get together over Star Trek with and, and talk about Star Trek with. And so since you just finished the series, I have to ask your opinion on the very final episode. Oh These my are the goodness. voyages, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. You know, it's a very polarizing episode. Um, some people love it. Some people hate it. What did you think? I thought it was a very interesting choice. Um, this seems like the most diplomatic thing to say. I think I will go on sort of pretending it ended at the episode before. That's how I prefer to think about it. Like, you know, that was a, an interesting choice on how to end it, but I think it really ended in my heart at the previous episode. Okay. So I, yeah, I can't say I'm a huge fan, but... Uh, that seems to was, be a common sentiment. It was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting. And overall, the series in general, um, you know, what did you think? And you can be as critical or harsh as you want to be. I had a blast. You know, it was some cheesy sci-fi fun, and that's really... If you're watching Star Trek, you're going in it for some cheesy sci-fi fun. And I really got that out of that. It was a really fun time. Excellent. All right. So this particular episode features a lot of ice. 
Hooray! And uh, and so you're an expert in ice, as we already know. <laughs> so what did you see in this episode? So as I was watching this episode with my friends, I was like, yes, we're going to an ice culture. This is going to be great. I'm so psyched. And then I started seeing some things that I questioned the physics of a little bit and some things that I actually thought were really cool and were a cool bridge to start talking about glaciology topics. So after we watched this episode, my friends humored me very kindly for a while as I talked ice physics at them. But one of the largest things that I wanted to bring up in this episode is that the Enar have picked a terrible place to have their city. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I remember that they're in this giant cavern, yes. ice cavern, that's probably hundreds of meters tall and wide, right? Yes, and that is, that is a terrible place to put a city. You should not put a city in an ice cave. You don't want to be hanging out in an ice cave for any extended period of time. So ice caves are actually more common than you think. Um, a lot of glaciers have them. They can form from where water is running through a glacier. So the water that I was observing with my seismometers, that was running through a tunnel system underneath the glacier and those can empty out when there's less water running through and that acts like an ice cave. Or you can get it from fractures opening and closing. Or if a flowing glacier goes over an obstacle, that can leave a gap. So ice caves are actually more common than you think. They appear in a lot of glaciers. But they might not be sticking around for very long because ice flows. It's so heavy that just the weight of the ice on top of it will cause the ice to flow. So unless there's something pushing back to keep an ice cave open, it's going to slowly creep, creep, creep closed over time. So the Enar City is in this huge ice cave. And now I don't know all about the Enar's technology. Maybe they have something that's keeping it all open. But if you saw an ice cave that big, even if it didn't collapse from the top, which is a real and scary possibility, it would still slowly creep in. Because even if you just had a block of ice that was big enough and heavy enough to flow, it will slowly creep into kind of a parabola shape instead of a block. So this big cave that they're in, assuming it's in a very large expanse of ice, it would be closing in on itself over a long period of time. The walls would be inching in towards the city. If there was a lot of ice on top, the ceiling would be crawling in too. So a big ice cave is a pretty risky choice for a city. Now, I mean, it could go a little bit slower than it would on Earth. So if Andoria is lower mass than Earth and the gravity is a little slower and that might cause the creeping to slow down. And it's colder in the episode, they say that it's 28 below zero in the middle of summer. So if your ice is a little bit colder then it acts a little bit more viscous while it's flowing. So that might slow the creeping a little bit too. But still, over time, that is not a sustainable place to put your giant city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really great insight that ice caves are very dynamic places. Mm -hmm. they, they flow and they fill up and they crack and they form because of movements in the ice. And, and it's not quite as stable as a rock cave. Yeah, a rock cave would be a fine place for your city. But an ice cave, I wouldn't recommend it. Okay, so maybe they have some technology that keeps yeah, it up. Yeah, we, we can, they, they seem pretty advanced. We'll, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. So there's this technologically advanced civilization hidden in the ice, and Shran tells Archer that the Enar were discovered just 50 years ago. Previously, they were just thought to be a myth. Uh, that seems kind of suspicious to me, that there's this highly advanced civilization that was basically hidden for all of 
Andorian history, who knows how long that was, up until 50 years ago, despite the Andorians' highly advanced culture themselves. And maybe we can chalk this up to the fact that the Enar are very telepathically capable and keep their city hidden from weak minds like the Andorians. <laughs> um, but Celeste, I think you have some ideas based on your own research about how you can detect strange anomalies inside of glaciers. So if you were Captain Archer and Shran and were looking for a giant hidden city in the middle of an ice cave or deep within the ice, how would you have done that? I would use radar. So Radar is actually a pretty common tool in glaciology. What you can do is basically shoot radar into a glacier and it will bounce off of any boundary in material. So this is one way that we can map what the beds of glaciers look like. So if you were to put a radar beam into a glacier, it would bounce off the rock bottom and come back up. And the timing of that return can tell you how deep it is to the bottom. But it can also find not just the rock bottom, it can find any layer or any boundary between different materials. So this is one way that you can detect where water conduits might be inside a glacier or where a cave might be inside of a glacier. So if I were Captain Archer and Shran, I would perhaps attach a radar unit to one of the shuttle pods and fly low over the glacier and look for where the return from the radar pulses emitted came back at a timing that was a lot sooner than just the rock below or the ocean below or whatever is below the ice. And then that might tell you, hmm, there's a big cave here and it's bouncing off of the boundary between the cave and the ice. Yeah, that seems like something that they just should have done in orbit. (laughs) There are some wonderful ways you can observe ice from orbit. For example, launching tomorrow or the next day, I believe, is NASA's ICESat-2, which is going to be bouncing lasers off of the surface Mm. of Earth's ice in order to see where the elevation is of of the surface of the ice and help track that over time. Now, that wouldn't tell you much about the inside. Most ice-penetrating radar, this method, is done from airplanes flying over the ice, or if you're looking at smaller-scale features, you can drag it behind snowmobiles or a person on skis. So I have actually pulled an ice-penetrating radar unit on skis. I was helping out with another project's field research where they were doing some ice-penetrating radar on a glacier. So you hook up an ice-penetrating radar emitter and a receiver on their own little funny-looking pairs of skis, and you pull them behind you as you go across the glacier, and they emit and receive radar pulses, and they bounce off the bottom of the glacier and come back. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, as Shran, Archer, and Jamel are trying to escape from the Anar City and reach the surface so that they can be beamed up back to the Enterprise, they are sort of telepathically tricked into thinking that they are going towards the surface, but really they're going around in circles. And they don't realize it, but they're really at the surface, at the opening to the cave, when they are confronted by the leader of the uh, Anar Society, or the, the person who was appointed to be the leader for this instance, since they have a much different kind of societal hierarchy than, than we do. But, uh, you know, they, they have the conversation with her, and she reads Jamel's mind, and eventually reveals the fact that they are basically at the surface we're at the surface this entire time. But now, Celeste, even if you were being psionically, mind, telepathically (laughs) tricked into thinking that you weren't really near the surface, your glaciology expertise would actually tell you from clues 
that you were observing that you were actually approaching the surface and what clues are those? Yeah, so if you ever find yourself telepathically bamboozled inside an <laughs> ice cave, you can figure out to a certain degree how deep you were. So inside the big city, the walls looked like solid, clear, glassy ice. And that tells us that we're pretty deep because it's solid ice. Remember when I was describing glaciers earlier, I told you that glaciers are formed by layers and layers of snow stacking up and then compressing into solid ice. So very deep in a glacier, it's going to be solid ice because all of that weight of all of that snow on top of it. But near the surface in a glacier, it's snow. If you are on top of a glacier, it just looks like snow at your feet. And when Archer and Shran and Jamel are in these tunnels, the walls look like a snow fort, not an ice cave. So they can tell that they're nearer the surface because that snow hasn't been compressed down into ice. So glaciers actually have layers. Every year, a new snowfall puts a new little layer in the glacier, and they compress each other down into sort of three main, three main components, three main big layers. So at the bottom is the solid glacier ice. It's all been compressed and recrystallized, and all those air bubbles are gone, and it's just beautiful clear ice. And then above that, you have what's called fern. It's not spelled like the plant, it's F-I-R-N, and that's partially compressed and recrystallized snow. So it looks sort of in between snow and ice. And then on top of that, it's just snow. It uh, still hasn't been smooshed enough to really be more solid. So if you look at the walls and you can say, boy, this looks like snow, I must be near the surface, or boy, this looks pretty like solid ice, I must be fairly deep. That's a really cool trick. The next time I'm in an ice cave, <laughs> you won't I'll be use telepathically it. bamboozled. Exactly. Wow, that is so cool. It all makes sense too because that's how glaciers grow, as you explained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it goes snow, fern, and then clear crystalline ice. Yes. Very cool. Now, there were also some uh, rainbows. Yeah, so when you're watching this episode, it's a, a beautiful artistic choice. They have the light moving through the ice is casting rainbows all over the walls and it's very beautiful but it's not very accurate unfortunately so this is uh you know the one complaint that i can't really solve very well with advanced in our technology or anything so in real life this is you know it's not rainbows but it's actually beautiful in a different way there's a very special kind of absorption of light that happens in water so the bond between the hydrogen and the oxygen it's the right size that that bond stretch can absorb photons of particular wavelengths and they tend to absorb on the red end of our visible spectrum. So this is why large quantities of water look blue. If you look out at the ocean, it's blue, even though a glass of water on a table is clear. A glass of water doesn't have enough to really absorb a ton of red light, but if light goes through a lot of water, then enough of that red gets absorbed that it just looks blue to you. And ice does the exact same thing. If you ever see pictures of ice caves in real life, they're this beautiful, beautiful blue color. It is absolutely striking. And it's because the light enters the glacial ice and all the red gets absorbed out and you're left only with this gorgeous blue. I highly recommend Googling pictures of ice caves because the color blue is absolutely stunning. And that's the color that should have been cast over all of the walls, not, not these beautiful rainbows. Wow, no rainbows, but a lot more blue. Yes, and a beautiful blue. I'm sure Shran would have agreed with you there. Yeah. He loves blue. It's actually a very <laughs> similar blue to Andorian blue. It gives them that nice icy look. They look yeah. like they belong in yeah. glaciers. All right. You know, the, the Andorians and the Inar are not the only beings living on Andoria. We were also introduced to these 
tunneling worms. Celeste, what did you make of these ice worms? So these ice worms were actually really cool, and they're a lot more realistic than you might expect. So in the episode, these ice borer worms use some kind of chemical reaction to heat themselves up and bore through the ice very quickly. Now, that might be a little bit unrealistic for a living thing to do, but there are living things in glacial ice. Now, not in the not in the very solid ice like these very hot ice borer worms might be able to do, but there are a species of tiny annelid worm, that's segmented worms, just like earthworms, but these are very tiny. They could fit on a penny very easily, and they're called ice worms. They live in the snow on the surface of glaciers and they eat algae that grows there. So these worms aren't the only life. There's also algae. And the algae, one species that grows on glaciers is actually very special. And I saw it on the glacier where I was doing my field work. It is lovingly nicknamed watermelon snow because it is bright pink. Hmm. So it's a species of algae that lives inside the snow near the surface. And in addition to green chlorophyll, it also has a lot of another molecule that is bright, bright, bright pink. So if you are near a glacier and you notice that it happens to be pink and that seems kind of a funny color, it is a funny color, but it's not the ice, it is the algae. Wow. I I don't go to the snow as often as (laughs) I should, but uh, the next time I'm up there, I will look for pink algae. Yeah. And they're they're photosynthesizing? Is that what's going on? Yes, they're photosynthesizing. They live very shallowly in the snow mm-hmm. where enough light is penetrating through that uh, they can photosynthesize. And then the worms eat the algae. And yeah, you have pink snow that's food for ice worms. And they're not quite as dramatic as the ones <laughs> from the Enar City, but they're still pretty darn cool. You know, that's so great. I'm glad you brought this up because it was something that had occurred to me as I rewatched the episode just this morning. If you have a world covered in ice and you have humanoids uh, and Dorians and Enar who are very much like human beings in that they breathe oxygen. Where did the oxygen on their planet come from? Now, on Earth, that came from, you know, photosynthesizing organisms, first cyanobacteria, and then eventually the plants that we see all around us. But I don't see any forests on Andoria, but maybe it's these algae on the surface. Yeah, Um, there's enough photosynthesizing snow algae, then that could maybe do the trick for them. Yeah, or maybe these ice worms even have some <laughs> role to play in the biogeochemical cycles on Andoria. Maybe their yeah. chemical reaction, because the, the oxygen in Earth's atmosphere comes from splitting up water, and so maybe these ice spores go around melting water, then consuming it and splitting it up and releasing oxygen as part of their metabolism. I don't know, I'd have to think yeah. a lot more about that. But Be a heck of a metabolism. Yeah. So another fun fact about the ice borer worms is actually they've figured out one of the best ways to drill into the ice, and that's what people do too when they want to drill into ice. So there's a lot of reasons you might want to drill into a large amount of ice. One of them is to retrieve ice cores. So because, as I said, glaciers are made of layers and layers of snow, they can act like a record book of historical precipitation. So if you drill a core, it's like looking at all the rings of a tree. You can look at the historical snow that has fallen. And the way that these cores are drilled is usually with hot drills, because that's the most efficient way to get into a lot of ice. You can also drill into the ice to put seismometers or strain meters or other kinds of scientific instruments deep into ice in order to figure out what's sort of going on in the depths. 
But yeah, so these ice borers have figured out something that us humans have figured out too. Heat is the best way to uh, get your way deep into some ice. Wow. (laughs) This has been so amazing, Celeste. Um, You've given me a lot of really, dare I say it, cool uh, facts about glaciers and ice. And I'm so happy that you caught me just in time to do this podcast. I'm glad you could have me. I love... I love Star Trek and I love glaciers and I love telling people about glaciers. That's my favorite thing to do. So I'm very glad that you're you're feeding my addiction to science communication. <laughs> so what's next for you, Celeste? Um, you finished Enterprise. Is there more Star Trek on your mm. horizon? Well, my friends and I are thinking about starting Discovery. I've heard so many great things about it that it uh, seems seems pretty tempting. So. I think it'll be a real blast. We're not stopping anytime soon. That's really heartwarming to hear. (laughs) Can I leave you with a quote, my favorite quote from the episode? Oh, oh, please, (laughs) please. So if I may leave you with a quote, the episode has Shran telling Archer, the Vulcans say that the desert teaches men the meaning of endurance, but it's the ice that forges real strength. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. I, I feel like that is like a motivational poster for any yeah. glaciologist. Yeah, right and there. I, I felt I felt rather forged after my field work. So mm-hmm. that's that's one that I want to write on my wall. Well, I wish you all the best in your research and your future science and science outreach endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have you back on Strange New World sometime. I'm <laughs> sure the next time, maybe when Star Trek Discovery goes to visit an ice. Hey, world. if they have an ice world, I'll be happy to be back. All right, sounds good. All right, thanks for having me. Of course. That concludes episode 48 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you learned something new about the physics of ice and how scientists are trying to unravel the secrets of how glaciers behave. I think you'll agree with me that no one loves talking about ice more than Celeste Lebed's. Thanks to Celeste, you're now better equipped to go exploring a system of ice caves, be it in Alaska, somewhere else on Earth, or the icy moon Andoria. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to rate and review Strange New Worlds on iTunes. And when I'm not dodging ice-boring worms or getting telepathically bamboozled, you can find me on Twitter, at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I, and chat with me about all kinds of things science and Star Trek related. Until next time, see you out there.